They say it's not what you know, it's who you know. You ever heard that? I think it's very appropriate. I've had this phrase proved true in my own life a number of times. Networking, connections, that's how so much in this world gets done. Some of us may have gotten jobs or contracts because of someone we know, someone we knew put in a good word for us. Many cities are now having networking lunches and dinners where business professionals from all kinds of different industries come together to simply meet one another, exchange business cards and information, and help one another succeed. Entire conferences exist for the sole purpose of networking in a particular field because it's not what you know, it's who you know. Some of you may have met famous celebrities or gotten a front row seat to a big event because of a connection with a certain person you knew. Some of you may have even gotten out of trouble with the law because of someone you knew. I had to go to court once when I was younger. Traffic violation, reckless driving. I was a teenager. I go to court in Owensboro, Kentucky. And the way that they did things then, I don't know if they still do, but they were hearing many minor cases at the same time on the same day. You just kind of had to wait your turn, but be in there for all of them. And as I was waiting, in walks this young woman that went to the same high school as me. Apparently, over the weekend, she had gotten in a little bit of trouble with the police. But it just so happens, right beside her was walking her dad, who just so happened to be a local politician. And when it came her turn to go up in front of the judge. Instead of her speaking to the judge, her dad stepped in for her and talked to the judge. And I thought, lucky her. See, unfortunately, for some of us, we don't have those kinds of connections. Some of us look at others who have those connections and we think, must be nice, but I'm on the outside looking in. Not everyone is so fortunate to grow up in circles connected to the privileged and the powerful. But today I hope to show you, no matter how privileged or lowly your upbringing was, no matter your status in the community or in the world, all of us have the opportunity to benefit from knowing someone very influential who will speak to the ultimate judge on our behalf. Let's read our text today. Exodus 32, I'm going to read verses 7 through 14. 7 through 14, this is God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent. 
from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. As we come to this text today, we perhaps remember what we talked about last week, or for those who were not here, didn't hear that sermon. The people are on the foot of the mountain worshiping the golden calf that they had made. They became impatient with how long Moses was taking up on the mountain with God. And then God says in verse 8, they have quickly turned out of the way that I commanded them. Oh, how quick, how short of a time it took for them to rebel against God and worship other gods. And then God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them. Now, what I want to focus in on, though, is Moses's prayer, his intercession for the people of Israel in verses 11 through 13. That's what we're going to focus in on for most of the time today. And I want you to see, first of all, How this prayer by Moses is a God-centered prayer. We're going to look at how God-centered this prayer is of Moses. The people are at the foot of the mountain disowning Moses, but he is praying for God to spare them. Now, Moses is such a wonderful example for us here in multiple ways. First of all, he shows what a true servant leader he is because he cares about the well-being of the people more than he cares about himself. He cares about the people more than he cares about himself. Notice how God says to Moses, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to start over with you. God puts this opportunity in front of Moses. I'm going to start all over with just you. Make a great nation out of you. Moses has the chance to be the new Noah, the new Abraham. It was a tempting offer, but Moses wants no part of it. He doesn't even take time considering it. Because he cannot detach himself from these people. He is their leader. They are his people. But more importantly this morning in Moses' prayer, what I want you to see is that this prayer shows us Moses cares more about God than he cares about himself. He cares more about God and his glory than he cares about himself. This verses 11 through 13 is what I call a God-centered prayer. Years ago, as I was reading through the Bible, I started to notice, slowly but surely, that the prayers of the Bible sounded much different than the prayers that I was praying or the prayers I was hearing around me. I started to ask myself, why was that? What was it about the prayers in the Bible that sounded so different than our own prayers today? And one thing that stood out above all the rest were that these prayers in the Bible were utterly God-centered. They were centered on God. Whereas our prayers were so much, so often centered on ourselves. They were self-centered. My own prayers, I found, were like this. They sounded much different than the God-centered prayers of the Bible. So what I started doing was, as I would read through the Bible, I would make a note every time I found another one of these God-centered prayers. And slowly but surely, what I came to realize is, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. All over the Bible. There's dozens and dozens of them. I've got the notes. I've got the receipt, so to speak. And this is one of them. This is a prime example here of a prayer that is utterly God-centered and not self-centered. Now, there's two ways, two elements to this prayer specifically that I want to draw your attention to. 
that makes this prayer God-centered. The first comes in verse 12. Do you see how in verse 12 Moses appeals to God's reputation as he prays? He, He appeals to God's reputation. He asks God to spare the Israelites, but he appeals to God's reputation. He does not begin by appealing for the well-being of the Israelites. He begins by appealing to God's reputation and God's glory among the Egyptians. It's, It's really, at its heart, it's an appeal from Moses to God's desire to glorify himself. We serve a God that seeks to glorify himself. We serve a God that works for his own glory, to increase his glory in the world. God wants more glory for himself. Now, initially, that rubs some people the wrong way. When you hear that for the first time, when that's a new idea, it rubs you the wrong way. Why? Well, because if any human being was like that, it would be wrong. If any of us would like, was, were like that, it would be egotistical. If I was trying to gain glory for myself... It'd be wrong because I'm a sinner. I'm imperfect. We are not to gain glory for ourselves. We're to turn it away from ourselves. We're to turn down that and and put the glory on God and on his son, Jesus Christ. Remember John the Baptist saying, he must increase, I must decrease. We're supposed to be like that. But God, on the other hand, when God desires his own glory, it's not sinful. When God desires his own glory and to increase it in the world... It's perfectly right. It's perfectly fitting. He's perfectly worthy of it. And it is our greatest good for his glory to increase. For God's glory to spread and increase in the world, even in our own hearts, that's our greatest good. And so he's only giving us what is the very best thing that he can give us when he works for his own glory. We serve a God who seeks to glorify himself. Does that give you joy today? It should. It should give us joy. It should make us, our hearts sing when we learn about God that he seeks to glorify himself. Some will bristle at it. But those who truly have their treasure in God and in God alone will take great joy from learning about his character and his nature. And one of the very fundamental facts about God is that he seeks his own glory. Moses knows it. Moses knows it. And Moses appeals to it in his prayer. And he says, God, if you destroy the Israelites, if you destroy this people, your glory will be diminished among the Egyptians. Brothers and sisters, we should appeal to God in the same way in our prayers. As we come to God asking him for things, we should come to him with the desire that he would grant those things so that his glory would increase in the world. Hallowed be your name. We just prayed, remember? Hallowed be your name. Glorified be your name. We should come to God with the desire that he answer our prayers primarily so that he can gain more glory for himself. There's a, a verse that's always stuck with me in the Psalms, Psalm 37, 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that's an important two-part promise. It does not mean you come to God and you ask for whatever you want, and he will just grant it to you. So as long as you're coming to church, and as long as you're doing your duty as a Christian, you ask for a Corvette, he'll just give it to you. It's not what that verse means. Delight yourself in the Lord. 
and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because if your delight is truly in the Lord, if your delight is to see the glory of God increased, then God will give you those desires because that's what he wants. That's what he wants anyway. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart because your desires will be lined up with his desires. Moses knows this about God and he appeals to it in his prayer. We should appeal to God's desire to glorify himself in our own prayers. And in that way, our prayers will become more biblical and more God-centered and less centered on ourselves. Now, there's a second way that Moses' prayer is God-centered. We see it in verse 13. In verse 13, he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And you said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember, Israel was the name that Jacob got from the Lord. He had his name changed to Israel. So these are the three patriarchs, if you will, of the faith. And Moses is praying to God and saying, God, remember, you promised to them, you swore by your own self that they would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Remember that you told them that their inheritance, their, their, their descendants would inherit the promised land. You see, he, he's quoting God's own promise back to him and saying, remember. Now, it's important. Don't misunderstand this. Moses is not coming to God and saying, God, maybe you forgot. Maybe you forgot that you said that. May it never be. It's impossible. God does not forget his words. God does not forget his promises. There's no way God will ever forget one of his promises. He's God. That is not what Moses is saying when he says, remember. Rather, Moses is calling on God to act according to his own words. He's calling on God to act according to his own promise. And when we pray like that, when Moses prays like that, when we pray like this, it honors God. It's not belittling to God. Some people would see this and they'd be like, why would you say that to God? Why would you say God's own promises back to him? Why would you quote God's own words back to him as if he didn't know them? That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we are calling upon him as the one who always keeps his promise. And we are coming to him as one who values his word. Do you value God's word? Do you love God's word? Then pray on the basis of it. It's good and right and biblical to quote scripture Back to God as we pray. This past week, we're studying Acts on Wednesday nights. In Acts chapter 4, the believers are gathered to pray, and they quote in the middle of their prayer, they quote Psalm 2. It's good and biblical to quote God's word back to him. It shows that we are coming to him as students of his word, as lovers of his word. It shows that we are responding to his revelation. That's really what prayer is, by the way. What is prayer? except responding to what God has revealed to us of himself and of this world and of who we are. We're responding to God. That's what prayer is. And so when God sees that we're praying according to his own words that we've, he's given us, he sees that's a person who loves my word. That's a person who reads my word. That's a person who has internalized my word and who is basing their prayer requests on my own word. It honors God when we pray like that. It's God-centered to pray like that. 
And so Moses' prayer is God-centered and a wonderful example for us to make our prayers more like the prayers of the Bible, more God-centered and less self-centered. Now, there's a question, though, that comes up when we read this text. It's a natural question that comes up in most people's minds, and it's this. Did Moses change God's mind? Did Moses change God's mind with his prayer? Or perhaps a more broad question, pretty much the same, does prayer change God's mind? Many people want to believe it does. Many people want to believe that prayer changes God's mind. Why do we want to believe that? It's because we want to know that our prayers are powerful. We want to know that our prayers matter, that they actually mean something. If God's going to do whatever he wants anyway, why should I even ask him for anything? We want to know that our prayers actually make a difference, that it's actually meaningful when I'm coming to God and asking something. We want to believe that stuff can really happen as a result of our prayers, but prayer does not change the mind of God. Prayer does not change the mind of God. How do we know that? We know that because of who God tells us who he is in Scripture. God's very own words about himself tell us that this could never happen. For example, Numbers 23.19. Listen to Numbers 23.19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Explicitly there, it says God does not change his mind like we do. God does not change his mind. You'll find the same thing in 1 Samuel 15, 29. God does not change his mind. He doesn't change his mind because he's not a man like us. He's not a human being. He doesn't change his mind because he already knows everything. He already knows everything. God never receives new information. Have you ever heard someone pray like they were giving God new information? Every now and then we'll pray like that. You know, we'll be praying, God, Sister Mary is is in the hospital. God, she's in room 204 in the hospital on the second floor. God, she's got pneumonia. God, she's been in there since since Thursday. It's like we're, we're giving God information. You know, sometimes it might be more for the people who are hearing the prayer. But God never receives new information. It's impossible. He knows everything already. He knows every request that we would make before it comes off of our tongue, before it comes into our minds. God never hears a prayer and says, oh, I hadn't thought of that. God never hears a prayer and says, I've never considered it in that way. I guess my original plan was not the wisest way to do things. I'll change it. Some people read this this passage and think that's what's going on, that Moses brings something up that God hadn't considered, and then God's like, oh, well, the the way you put it there, I guess I won't destroy them. This is God we're talking about, the God of the universe. He knows all things, past, present, and future, perfectly. He cannot change his mind. He does not change his mind. It's an impossibility. Malachi 3.6 tells us, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God doesn't change. If he did, we would be consumed. 
If we served a God who was changing all the time and we didn't know what to expect and we couldn't bank on who he was when we came to him, we would be consumed in that. We'd be destroyed in that. It, we'd, we'd, we'd buckle under that. But thank the Lord, praise the Lord, we do not serve a God like that. We serve a God who never changes. And we can bank on his character when we come to him, no matter what's happening in our lives. The kind of linchpin, so to speak, text in the Bible for this idea is Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. I'm going to read this. It'll be on the, 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 the screens up behind me. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. It's kind of the linchpin in this doctrine of no, the Lord never changes his mind. Here's what it says. Jeremiah 18, this is God speaking. It says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do it, to do to it. And if at any time, God says, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. You see, any time God makes a pronouncement about a nation or a kingdom, there is always an implied condition that God's actions will depend on their response to his words. There's always an implied condition, always, that God's actions will depend on how they respond to his pronouncement, to his words. And so even if God doesn't say that, it's always there. It's always there in every one of his pronouncements. And so God did not change his mind. But then the question is, well, then why would he say it like this to Moses? Why would he say it? I mean, he says literally, Moses, leave me alone so my wrath may burn hot against them and I'll consume them and I'll start over with you. Why would God say that if Moses is not actually changing his mind? It's because God is putting Moses to the test. He's putting Moses to the test. Remember Abraham? Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son. Did God actually intend for Abraham to sacrifice his only son? No, he didn't. He wanted Abraham to go through with it, though, up to the point where the angel stops him. And he provides a substitute sacrifice, and he provides a picture of the gospel there on the top of that mountain. You see, God is putting Moses to the test. He knows saying it in this way will draw Moses into the fray, so to speak, and move him to intercede for the Israelites. And that was God's plan all along. God's plan all along was to save the Israelites through the intercession of a mediator. That was his plan the whole time. So you see, your prayers are powerful. Your prayers are powerful, but not because they change the mind of God. Your prayers are powerful precisely because God has decided to do many of the things he does as a result of the prayers of his people. That's why our prayers are powerful. Because God has sovereignly decided that our prayers would be the means by which he brings about his glorious will in this world. What a privilege. What a privilege that God would actually use a prayer of little old insignificant me to bring about his will in this world. But he has sovereignly decided to do so. And that is why our prayers are powerful. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 that God delights to give good gifts to his children who ask. So, ask. Seek. Knock. 
Because God delights to respond to those things. He delights to work his will by means of responding to the prayers of his saints. God delights to glorify himself by answering our prayers in such a way that we would see his loving response and his great power and then turn and glorify him. He delights to glorify himself in such a way that others who do not yet believe would see it and be drawn to Christ. It's the beauty of prayer, but it does not change the mind of God. Rather, God has decided to use the prayers of his people as the means by which he acts out his will in this world. Now, finally, the third and final thing I want us to see from our text today is that Moses points us to Christ. Moses points us to Christ. Why was it God's plan all along to save the Israelites through the intercession of a mediator? For the same reason it was God's plan all along for Abraham to get real close to sacrificing his son Isaac and then to provide a substitute sacrifice. The same reason. Why was it his plan all along? Because God was crafting one of his beautiful foreshadowing pictures of the ultimate mediator who was to come. That's what's happening here in Exodus 32. All those years before Jesus was ever on this earth, God was already using the Israelites and even using their sin to create a picture of the ultimate redemption that would come through the ultimate mediator later on. God was intentionally pointing forward to the day when he would save all people through the intercession of his son, Jesus Christ. Phil Riken, in his wonderful Exodus commentary, writes this. This, Exodus 32, this is really the story of our salvation. God is up on his holy mountain, and we are down on earth. And like the Israelites, we are floundering in the folly of our rebellion against God. And what we need is someone like Moses. We need someone to intercede for us. We need someone to come down to us from God. Someone who can turn away God's wrath. Just as Moses interceded on behalf of the people and turned aside God's wrath, so Jesus has interceded for us. And at the cross, Jesus turned aside God's wrath, which was intended for us. Listen to the words of John in 1 John 4.10. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is a big word that we don't usually use in our everyday conversations. But what it means is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. A sacrifice that turns away wrath. Jesus on the cross is taking the wrath of God that was intended for a different object. It was intended for us. And he takes it as a sinless substitute. We've often said Jesus is like a lightning rod, right? You set up a lightning rod so it diverts the lightning from its intended object and spares that intended object. The, the consequences of lightning strike it, striking it. That's Jesus. Jesus turns aside God's wrath by interceding for us on the cross. And now, Romans 8 tells us, That Jesus, at this very moment, right now, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what's he doing? He's interceding for us. 
Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God at this very moment interceding for us. We have a friend who just so happens to be the son of God who is speaking to the judge of all mankind on our behalf. Now do not misunderstand this. It is not as though God the father is the mean one prone to fits of anger and Jesus is the one who has to calm him down and talk him out of it. No, God has planned this from eternity past with Christ. They planned this from eternity past, that it would be this way, that Jesus would become one of us and die in our place as an innocent substitute and then ascend to the honored place of sitting at God's right hand. And as he sits at the Father's right hand, he still has the scars from the cross. You remember this. Jesus' resurrected body still has the scars from the cross as an eternal proclamation that he was the sinless substitute that turned aside God's wrath. Those scars are an eternal testimony to the mediating work Jesus did on the cross, turning aside God's wrath and taking it upon himself. And so as he sits at the Father's right hand, he intercedes for us by means of him being the crucified and risen Son of God with the scars still there. That is his intercession. His very presence there as the crucified one is the intercession for those of us who would come to faith in Jesus. For those of us who would come to God through his son, through his mediator, Jesus Christ. And so he is not pleading with God, trying to talk him out of destroying us. No, he is there as an intercessor showing that all who come to God through that mediator will not experience the wrath of God because he's already taken it. He still bears the scars. Notice how God told Moses in our text. God said, Moses, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Let me do this. Why is God saying that? What he's really saying is step aside, Moses. Step aside. I will not destroy this people as long as you are identifying with them. So step aside. But what God's really doing is he's inviting Moses not to step aside. He's inviting Moses not to leave him alone. And Moses identifies with the people. And Moses says, please do not destroy them. I'm going to intercede for them. And as long as Moses, the mediator, is identifying with his people, God will not destroy them. The same is true for us in Jesus. As long as Jesus identifies with us, as long as he is our mediator, God will not destroy us. And brothers and sisters, Jesus will never stop identifying with us. Jesus became a human being when he was conceived in the Virgin Mary. And he remains a human being for all eternity. He came to become one of us and he remains one of us. Even at the right hand of the throne of God this very moment, he has his body. He remains a human being. He will never stop identifying with us. And so there will always be safe haven. There will always be rescue for those who come to God through that one mediator, Jesus, because he will never stop identifying with us. He became one of us. He remains one of us. And he is at the right hand of the throne of God right now, interceding 
for us, turning aside God's wrath because we have come to God through him. And one day he will come again. One day he will come again. When Jesus comes, guess what else comes? The wrath of God. And when the wrath of God comes, only those who are protected by the blood of the mediator will escape it. Are you protected by the blood of the mediator? Have you come to Jesus? Have you put your faith and your trust and your life in his hands so that when that day comes, when your time comes, when Jesus returns, you will be protected from the wrath of God because you are God's child in his son, Jesus Christ. Right now, we're going to spend a little bit of time in silent prayer as we do each week. This time is for all of us to go to the Lord and to respond to him with whatever he has laid upon our hearts through his word. And so we give these few moments of silent prayer for you to do that. We ask that you do that during this time. And after a few moments of silent prayer, we'll come back together. We'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so then. But for right now, let's pray silently and respond individually.